out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is The C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the singer-songwriter and um, generally song yes songwriter as well as um, feature film writer as well it is the one and only valentine guinness who's been in various uh, bands including panic and also the forbidden the new forbidden and has a solo project as well and um, lots of other stuff as well if you want to find out any more information just google valentine guinness and that's it or just actually put in valentineguinness.com he's got a website anyway look this is the interview and uh, so after several minutes of casual chat well quite a lot in this case uh, we got down to that exciting subject that was the um, oh the early formative years Valentine it's over to you yes um, actually I've been thinking about that very <coughs> that very um, question quite a lot in the last couple of days and I had quite an unusual upbringing um, in, well, put it like this, I was a child in the 1960s and I had both my mother and my stepmother who were in, in their, their 30s um, were very into the whole new pop culture. And I think, and I've been thinking about this, and I think that um, women were far more ready to um, get involved in all in it all than men. So my father and my stepfather, um, who were in their thirties also, the whole thing completely passed them by. They were too old, that it wasn't gonna happen for them. But for my mum and my stepmother, they, were, they loved the fashion, they loved the music. And so I spent my, my, my um, the, the, the 1960s listening to the top 20 with my mum. And my stepmother was a bit more esoteric. She um, she introduced me to things like The Doors and Leonard Cohen. And uh, she'd, um, she, was, she was rather um, bohemian character and she'd done a lot of traveling. And, and uh, so I, I, I was exposed to these influences at a very young age. So pre-10 actually. And so I think it really was from there. And the, the top 20, as you very well know, in the 1960s was fascinating because you had the Stones and you had the Beatles, but, um, you know, the exciting moment when the Beatles released a single was amazing. Mm. But you also had these eccentric things, like um, I, I was thinking like teen, uh, excerpt from a teenage opera, for instance. I don't know if you remember that. And then and Fire by Arthur Brown. Yes. And, you know, these, these wonderful kind of bizarre drug-induced probably... Um, sort of a very kind of left field things, which I, I, I loved all those as well. And of course, you know, one was exposed to all the Motown stuff and the soul and Otis Redding, you know, it, it, it was really all there for you. Yes. So, um, it, but so you just had to have, you had to have someone to, to introduce it to you. And I also had an older brother and sister who, um, again, were very influential in that way too. Yes, I was, I was going to say, actually, I was going to say something else there. But then, <laughs> were, were you also being sort of taken to any of these kind of concerts as well, like Hyde Park or 
any of the kind of early gigs or happenings that they had in the 60s because there was also all that stuff with Bar a guy called Barry Miles and Indica books and it was the 1967 you had the you know the 14 hour, hour Technicolor dream then John Peel with his perfume garden on the radio Caroline I mean there was an awful lot of change and it was kind of interesting you mentioned the women in the family because you would have had Mary Quant and you had Bieber and you would have had you know all these kind of else soon you know everybody that fashion world as well as the art world was quite glamorous wasn't it absolutely and that went hand in hand for for them um the the, the female members of the family were so into all the fashion um my mum was amazing i mean she she would she'd take me to carnaby street and we'd have fun you know, hanging out there um but no the answer to your question is no i didn't actually get to any of the live events in those days um that was a bit of a step too far, <laughs> but um, but my uh, my my brother and sister were taken to see the Beatles, um, and of course I, I I'm cross about that that to this day, but oh, I don't think they heard anything because basically it was just a wall of screaming. Yes, you know? absolutely. But anyway, they they did that, and they they oh my god, they saw Bowie in in Oxford, and I think that first tour they did, you know. Oh dear. I so I'm slightly that. jealous of that, but okay. no, I, so I, I didn't manage to get out much. Because <laughs> uh, I'm more the sort of 70s, but then that was, you know, Top of the Pops on the Thursday, Sunday evenings you had the top 20 or 20, top 40 on Radio 1 that you'd listen to on a Sunday evening about 7 o'clock, and it was very exciting because songs only moved slightly, but it was the kind of glam period, you know, the sweet Slade, um, Gary Glitter. <laughs> And, uh, yep. <laughs> and Alice Cooper, you know, with schools out. It was like, wow, this is very exciting. But I was only about 12 at the time. But it was still very exciting to hear, you know, schools out for summer. So what was, what, did you do the crossover into the glam and then slowly into that punk world? Yes. Um, I, what happened to me, um, yes, yeah, so in the 70s, which was extremely exciting, um, I found, uh, I, was a, I was a boarding school and... Um, the thing about sort of uh, boarding schools, definitely in those days, was they were always a few years out of date. So everybody seemed to be listening to Led Zeppelin and Deep Purple. And no, but nobody was listening to, for instance, the Velvet Underground or um, uh, Iggy Pop, for instance, you know. And, and also David Bowie didn't really come into the, onto their radar. Yeah. It was odd. Was, so, it um, kind of, was it more prog rock? Was it the Yes Genesis gang? And, and totally, that's it. That's right. Because yes. I've got yes, because our yeah. brother who's seven years older and his his kind of late teen period was that it was you know Deep Purple, Black Sabbath, um, yeah. Yeah. a bit of Led Zeppelin, but it was you know Yes, Genesis, Wishbone Ash, and the work of Rick Wakeman, and it was like wow, that was well, that was Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. Don't forget. I mean, you know, I mean, sorry, I mean, I, no, no offense to any of those artists, but they didn't really do anything for me. Um, and I, I, when I heard the Velvet Underground, you know, I was one of those 5,000 people, you know, their famous quote, yes. five, you know, um, only 5,000 people listened to the record and they all started bands. That's <laughs> <laughs> what someone said. And um, yes, the Velvet Underground, I loved the weirdness of it and the kind of um, the roughness of it. Uh, I, I was never interested in, 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 in that sort of big macho stuff that, that all those other bands were purveying, you know. Mm. So I started listening to the Velvet Underground, um, and David Bowie was a very important influence. I was—I had an extraordinary thing with my, for my tenth birthday. My sister gave me Space Oddity um, on 
and it was the Phillips single that was released in 69. I think, it, I think I'm right with the dates. And um, absolutely loved it. I played it and played it and played it. And then, of course, he sort of disappeared, didn't he? And um, yeah. so when uh, the fuss came out, the fuss, all the fuss happened about Ziggy Stardust, I was fascinated because I, I remembered it was this bloke whose record I liked so much as a kid. So um, David Bowie, Lou Reed, um, I, that's what I was listening to um, that my, in my teens. And I think, and I think it sort of touches on your question, um, in my experience anyway, the age of 15 is the absolute apogee of when you are um, affected by all this stuff. And I mean, I think so, that, so the, my 15th year, you, well, and I, I, I feel you're like a sort of sponge. It goes in and that's it and you're, you're hooked. Yes. And in my 15th year, um, it was the year of, um, well, Diamond Dogs came out um, and um, Berlin by Lou Reed, both rather dark. <laughs> I mean, my, I've been accused of all my songs being rather depressing. And um, I, said, I, I said to someone the other day, I said, well, I don't know what you're talking about. And then I actually sort of went through them and I sort of had a, a box for depressing and a box for undepressing. <laughs> I'm afraid not very many of them got into the undepressing box. Right. So, uh, and also that, you know, Mick Ronson released an album that year, which I loved as well, you know. Um, so 74. Yeah, that was my... That, that was, was your year. Just, that was my year. And I started learning the guitar and I started writing some very, very, very primitive yes. songs. So when did you find that you had a voice? You know, just... Uh, well, I sort of knew, I kind of knew that um, from being in the choir at school. And thinking, right, you know, I mean, perfect. You know, um, I, so I, yes, I, I'd always, I mean, actually even, yeah, I, I don't know. I did know that I, I could hold a, a tune, yeah. Yes. And were you, um, because then, you know, obviously in a simplistic way, but you were 15, so that was kind of perfect. You suddenly must have seen that punk period and the fashion changing quite radically. And then was this when you started to form bands yourself in this kind of late 70s? Yes, um, so I, I formed a band um, when I left school, and um, I mean, I was I, I was already slightly lagging, really, because in a sense, um, God, what, I mean, in a way, I was what was I, I was slightly too young, really, to be to get to be to be a, a proper punk. So what, what what we did? It was called Pearly Spencer, and um, it was a sort of kind of a strange mishmash of punk, definitely, but sort of more influenced by the kind of American people. Right. Um, sort of like Iggy Pop. New York Dolls? Ri Richard Hell and people like that. What um, about actually, the New York Dolls? Uh, th yes, of course, I listened to them. They're a little bit too, too, too out there for me. But, but, you know, so in a funny way, I was a kind of almost like a precursor of... of, of the sort of new way more. Um, so what I'm saying is, so it, uh, my stuff would have been spat on by punks, really, because right. it, it was a little bit, uh, I mean, there was even a bit of sort of prog rock um, sort of influence in the sense that it wasn't verse, chorus, verse, chorus. It was kind of, it, it was a strange mixture of stuff. But we, we you know, we, we, fit, we fitted in okay in, in, on the scene. Um, I mean, I tell you who, who was, Exactly, my my favourite band of the time was the only ones. Right, another girl, another planet. Yes. So, 
you know, in a million years, I wouldn't pretend to be, um, you know, as good as them. But I, I guess our music, you, you'd be able to tell the influence in my songs from there. Right. Because you can't really call them punk. Really, no. So, so Peter Perrett was my influence. And also, I was off, my voice is often compared to his. The, yeah. just the sort of, well, I suppose there, there were artists like, you know, Elvis Costello, who just kind of had that kind of energy inside anger. But I wouldn't say they were punk. You know, they didn't really sort of fit into that world that was the K-Tail top 20 punk records of all time, you know, like, BR, yeah. yes, and all that kind of stuff. But then, you know, it was kind of interesting because I'm, I'm still sort of getting a bit more with it here. So there's the 70s, then, you know, the, the punk period, and then you had that slightly post-punk period with, you know, Magazine, Gang of Four, Peel, and, um, yeah, those, those kind of slightly scratchy bands which were quite sort of avant-garde. But then, you know, I'm really an indie kid. You know, the 80s was the period where I started, you know, getting to that age, like you said, 15, 16. And it was indie pop that was like, oh, this is kind of my thing. So did the 80s, was that, was that kind of a moment for you with the change of the decade that you felt like, right, this is, this is going to be my decade? Um, I, I did for a bit. I started a band. Um, Pearlie Spencer sort of disbanded. Um, there were, <laughs> there was quite a lot of uh, um, drug abuse in Pearlie Spencer. <laughs> as a result, <laughs> as a result, it didn't really kind of, um, it, it, it couldn't last, um, if you know what I mean. And I started a new band um, and we called it Panic. And we decided to all dress in red. This was going to be our sort of selling point. Red from top to toe all the time. I mean, I suppose Kraftwerk had already done it, but you know, yeah. blah, blah, blah. That was going to be. Um, and I, I, what happened really, yes, you're right. I think we were influenced by exactly those sort of people that you've just mentioned. Um, well, I was as the, as the songwriter. Um, but what, what really did for us is Trevor Horn and the whole sort of digital recording revolution. Yeah. Um, you know, because uh suddenly one's demos just sounded really rough compared to it, it was the sort of duran duran abc thing that kind yes of, and then there was, I, and there was talk talk as well and all that kind yeah, of yeah all that stuff so i got rather disillusioned frankly i mean it was it was tricky um i i missed the 70s to be honest <laughs> <laughs> um and, and we we struggled to, we didn't get a record deal uh, oh yes we did briefly we had we put out two singles in 1983 uh one of which was a cover of she's not there yeah but... um and um yes but i think i felt um i felt suddenly these bands that were being produced in, in these extremely expensive studios with very, very expensive equipment, it was very difficult to compete with them. You know? Yes. I suppose they they suddenly, I mean, I think with music, and one, one thing I've gathered from doing these interviews is timing is everything, isn't it? You know, they, there's a certain amount of, not luck, because you create your own luck, but there is a lot of people who just went, we were just in the right place. Or I did an interview with Richard Hell, who said, oh, we were two years too early for punk. And it's like, oh no. You know, everyone yes. came to see us and went, brilliant, we'll, we'll, we'll do punk in a couple of years, but you're going to be a bit too old, you know, by the age of 25. And it was almost like, oh, shit. So it was kind of interesting in the in sense of timing is so important. No, I mean, that's absolutely correct. Um, no, you know, you put your finger on it. And um, I mean, unfortunately, the, the, you know, 
with a band, the temptation is to sort of try and try and chase the zeitgeist really and and sort of do what you think yes. people want. But then you're always you're always going to you're always going to be too late um, if you do that. Really, you've got to try and stick to your guns. Well, it's interesting because yeah. I, I sort of realised that Bowie in the eighties, one of the things he did, Let's Dance, which was great. But the next two albums, it sounded like he was looking at what was happening and then doing it and trying to follow it. And it was like he kind of missed it. And then I think he started again with Tin Machine. Just went right. Let's start. We'll boys in the band. Let's just rock a bit, and then I'll get my mojo back again. And it was almost a bit like that, you know, that the quality, the kind of production, and everything in his albums tonight and Never Let Me Down were just like this is a bit like a, a Bowie impersonator, you know. Yes, I know what you mean. It's actually funny enough, you know, um, David. Uh, when he when he died, I sort of went through back through the back catalogue um, a bit, and. Never Let Me Down is, you know, apparently he, he sort of hated it and was really embarrassed about it later on. But there's a couple of really good songs on there, actually. Yeah, Zeros. I mean, yeah, yeah, there's, there's a couple of sort of real David Bowie songs, but I know what you mean about the David Bowie impersonator thing, yes. in, in a sense, because um, I think he got terribly lost, actually. I, I did meet him a few times. Um, yeah. I, I, I met a lot of my sort of heroes because my sister had a job with Andy Warhol. Um, right. And uh, she, she worked for Andy Warhol in the seventies and eighties. Um, and I used to go and, uh, I used to go to New York and visit him. And I, and I met um, David Bowie, Lou Reed, Mick Jagger, the whole, the whole lot, one by one I managed, I managed to. Excellent. Uh, which was excellent. Cause I've been managing, I've been sort of being a bit fascinated with the New York club scene. So. I've, I know they're CPGBs, but but it's kind of Max's Kansas City and the Mud Club that I've been doing interviews with various people from that scene, as well as Victor Bokris as well. So I've been hearing... Oh, Victor Bokris, yes. I, re I read his book on Lou Reed, yes. Yes, he yeah. said he loved that, but then he said, the Patti Smith one, he said, don't read it, it's terrible. I'm so embarrassed by it. So. Oh, oh, right, right. It was um, not a good moment. No, I love the Lou Reed one. I mean, I remember... Um, going to see, the first time I went over there was um, 77. And um, I was just so lucky because I just, I just literally was a kind of hanger on of Warhol and I used to just follow him around. And um, he said, we're going down to, we're going to go and see Brian Ferry. He's playing at the bottom line. So I said, oh yeah, I like Brian Ferry. I'll, I'll, I'll tag along with this. And um, there was, the support band was called the Talking Heads. <laughs> and, <laughs> Um, I said Andy didn't, you know, he wasn't, he, funny, he wasn't interested in music at all. I mean, he really wasn't. Um, and I said, you know what, I think that this band is really interesting. I mean, I don't know what's going to happen to them, but they're very, they're very unusual. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so, so obviously that, that must have been amazing having those kind of experiences, but with your own sort of musical journey, then what happens after Panic? Did, you know, and she, and uh, well, you did She's Not There and then Ticket to the Tropics. That's right. Oh my God. Yes. You've done your research. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, yes. Well, you know, I kind of, it all kind of slid then really. Um, and, you know, really fast forward to, the late eighties, um, I got together with. Um, I, I, I saw that you interviewed Mark Saunders. 
Mark Saunders, the famous yeah. Mark. So he sort of, yes, I think that was where you came a bit on my radar. But then I've been listening to the new album, well, two years ago, and it's brilliant. And I thought, oh, and you're doing Glastonbury. And I was like, okay, this is interesting. Yeah, yeah yes, yes. Um, well, I know, I mean, it's been, it's been amazing. The, the last few years have been amazing, David, because I never thought, I just never thought I would still be doing this at my age, you know, um, it's really fun. But anyway, so what happened was Mark had been the drummer in Panic. And he um, had, by the late 80s, was now a kind of established engineer. And um, with a couple of mates, we did some recordings with him, which were, um, were sort of simple minds pastiches, basically. <laughs> I mean, quite embarrassing to listen to now, but incredible production, you know, unbelievable. Um, um, using every synthesizer in, in West London, you know, <laughs> and um, uh, those, so, so there was that. And then I came back down to earth a bit in the 90s and I had a, a really good time. Um, I got together with a chap called Owen Griffiths, who um, is an excellent guitarist and um, he's the son of Annette Crosby, the actress. Right. And basically he became my songwriting partner and we had a series of bands during the 1990s. And funnily enough, I felt more at home with Britpop and everything than I had, I was, I was back really. Yeah. In, in, I was back in my comfort zone really. And so we, um, you know, we liked suede and pulp and all that sort of stuff. And um, we got a, you know, we had a few breaks. We got signed up by um, the producer, Steve Levine. Right. At one stage who, was the person who's worked with um, um, Boy George at the beginning. Um, he, he, he produced their first stuff. And um, he, we produced a single with him. Um, and by this stage, we were called Darling. <laughs> <laughs> Which, you know, one has to try, try and have a band name that you don't immediately laugh after you say it. <laughs> But you know, whatever, whatever. Um, and so we had Steve Levine and that was great fun. And then we were picked up by um, a, a Dutch record company and we spent um, some time in Amsterdam recording another EP. Um, again, um, you know, I was quite pleased with all that stuff. Because really. what, what I found is that a lot of bands, especially, you know, because I'm, you know, the, the 80s is definitely kind of the decade I was interested in, you know, they have a five-year narrative, you know, they have that 12 months getting together, and in the early days, especially in the early 80s, you know, politically things were a bit grim, so a lot of young people, I just remember, signing on the dole wasn't a big trip, it was like, well, we're not going to get a job, there's no kind of career, but we can do the enterprise allowance or job seekers allowance, and that gives you that one year of been almost having a grant but you know you were just still signing on in a way and then you know John Peel plays that single you get the John Peel session the album then you yeah. get that tricky second album where the band have completely fallen apart and are very dysfunctional and then that's it but then I've noticed that a lot of people sort of doodled away with music but then you know there's been a period of time and then they go actually I quite enjoy it and either slightly getting back with the original people if they're still alive or just getting some new friends so it's interesting that music never leaves anybody. Yes I, I agree with you I mean I that is very correct and I think what 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 tends to happen what has happened is that you think oh no I'm getting on um I ought to I ought to get a life and um stop being stop being an eternal teenager 
but actually you can't you're stuck with really with it <laughs> um and but but i mean i did i um at the end of the century i said to the rest of the band who were all quite a lot younger than me i said i think i think I actually i'm now it's now getting to the stage where I'm a bit embarrassed getting up on stage in pubs in London at my age. Um, it was, it's weird how things have changed, by the way. But I said, look, it's, it's a bit embarrassing because um, I'm 40 now or whatever I was. And um, I, think, I think you ought to be, you ought to have a chance of doing this without some old codger like me pulling you back. And that was true the, then. Things have changed immensely since then. No one seems to care how old you are anymore. It's, no, that's true. Yes, it's, it's true. really interesting. I mean, you know, because Lloyd and I have been doing the pub circuit in London for years now, and no one gives us a second look. No one, you know, it's very different. There, there used to be this ageism, and it's gone. Um, I don't know. I don't know why, but it has. I suppose I think a few journalists were every ten years would sort of write something like the Rolling Stone, Stone should stop, and you think. <laughs> You're just a journalist for the NME or Q magazine. I mean, why why do you think that anybody should pay attention to you? You know, the you know, Iggy Pop or the Stones. I mean, what are they gonna do? Go and, you know, work in B and Q and go on the checkout at Tesco's. I mean, you know, what else are they gonna do? It's just ludicrous to say that's embarrassing. That's you know, but those yeah. articles used to come out in the paper, didn't they? Someone's written a book and they've they said, you know, it's really embarrassing. People should stop making music because it doesn't allow the young people. And it's like, well, they can make music if they want, and they probably aren't that. I mean, it's one of those conversations conversations I've had, I don't know if you've had with colleagues or friends, where you think, are young people really into music like we were? Or are they into other things? Because we don't really understand what young people are into anymore, do we? <laughs> Which is how it should be. You know, it's like, of course, we don't understand what young people, because people didn't probably understand us when we were there. there yes. Right? You know, they might be into apps or they might be into WhatsApp. And you think, brilliant, but we were into music and rock and roll, weren't we? Um, that's very true. It was, it was the thing. Um, and I think, you know, some of, you see some of these geniuses like Bowie, um, in another era would have done something else, but it just happened to be the thing of, of the time, didn't it? Yes. Uh, but did, did, well, looking at people like Bowie give you that almost permission to think, actually, I should just keep playing music and writing. That is my, that is my creative muse. That's where I'm alive. Yes. Um, well, you, you know, the most extraordinary thing really is that, I mean, the, the stuff that I've written for Lloyd in the last, um, you know, what it's been 10, 10 years or so, um, is much better, I think is the best stuff I've written in my 50s, which is really, uh, which was very unlikely, <laughs> in a way. Um, I think it's partly, actually, you know, going back to the, what we were talking about just a few minutes ago, it's because actually I'm not trying to please anyone really anymore. And I'm not trying to please A&R men from the record companies. So for the first time in my life, I'm literally writing songs that, for myself, as, as it were, you know, yeah. um, and, and I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not looking over my shoulder at all at, at what people are gonna say about them or anything. And I think that that freedom, I, th I think that was the mistake I, I made when I was younger, really, is um, trying, trying to write stuff to fit in with, with what was currently popular. Yes. So with the, the new Forbidden, which is your band, isn't it? Mm. Tell us how that's developed. Yes. OK, so Lloyd, um, as obviously he's very well known for, as, as a telly person and, and a journalist, etc. But 
his, he started off in the States. He's a bit older than me. And he started off in the States um, playing in bands in Boston and around in the 60s. And, um, and it's, it's, you know, more, more like the 70s, actually. Um, and also working as a journalist for Rolling Stone magazine, which he, which he had a great time doing because he met loads of very yeah. interesting artists. And then he came to London and he was, the whole point of coming to London was he was to, to be a success in, um, you know, a successful singer-songwriter with a band. And his band was called Jet Bronx and the Forbidden. And um, they actually had a top 40 hit. <laughs> I mean, no, because as you, as you well know, in 1980 or whenever this was, um, it was quite something, you had to sell quite a lot of records for top 40. Yeah, like yeah. tens of thousands. So he he um, he released something called "Ain't Doing Nothing," and "Ain't Doing Nothing" got us in something like thirty six in the charts or something. But but anyway, he stopped doing all that and became a journalist. I bumped into him in um, twelve years ago, whenever it was, um, at a party, and he said uh, something so weird has happened because this bloke um, has has got hold of me and asked me if I want to play at Rebellion Festival um, and play my song. And, um, you, you know, because this, they, they sort of, there was this strange thing going on that all these old punks were being sort of <laughs> sought out and kind of dragged out of retirement and put on stage by these people. And he said, and so Lloyd said to me, I mean, you know, I, I, I would quite like to do it, but I haven't got a band. I mean, you know, I don't know what to do. So it was like rather like the Blues Brothers. I said, "Well, okay, let's 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 start a band." And he said, "Oh, you know, that's the other thing." He said, "I really, really don't want to sing because it's just—I mean, I'd be too, far too embarrassed to do that." And I said, "Listen, I'll I'll do the singing. You play the guitar. We'll get a band together, and we've got eight months to do it. Um, let's do it." And we did. <laughs> and eight months later, we were we were in the the, the Winter Gardens at Blackpool playing to um, a lot of inheads, basically. <laughs> <laughs> and did that did that kind of was that the catalyst that made you think actually let's let's yeah quite a nice hobby yes totally and um so I started writing some new material for the band I mean we we we, we played the time we played some of my old stuff from the 90s and some of his old songs and then I started writing new material and that was just fantastic uh, such fun and we he introduced me to somebody called Jeff Haslam, who um, has had a fantastic career as a record producer um, and then retired and became a teacher. But he his sort of, for, for me, his major claim to fame was that he remixed Loaded by the Velvet Underground. Right. Um, he was asked by Atlantic Records to remix it because all the songs were about 16 minutes long. <laughs> <laughs> and so Jeff took it away and made it into what, turned out to be the Velvet Underground's best-selling LP. Uh, but the band was so angry with him that they, they refused to speak to him ever again. Because <laughs> all, all of the sort of, you know, the long solos and everything had been excised. And then he also, he, he, he produced MC5 and people right. like that. So, yeah. so he so produced our first album called Ain't Doing Nothing. Yes. And, uh, uh, that, that came out in 2011 or 2012, I think. Yes. Uh, so then, and then he... Mm. So then fast forward to the, the songs from the subway. 
I mean, yes. so when did you start writing and recording that material? Well, that, um, yeah, um, that was all done in about, well, around about 2016, 2017. Um, and also we moved on to um, working with Dan Swift, the producer, who's um, famous, well, he's done a lot of stuff, but he, um, Snow Patrol was his. Thing. Right. And um, so we, we recorded most of it in Brighton with, um, with Dan Swift. And uh, I, I'm so pleased with the result. And did you find that the song started to come quite quickly? Because, you know, what I've, you know, I've been listening to a lot of it and I was like, actually, there's very, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't start to fade, does it? You know, it starts with the Doctor and it's just like, actually, every song is really well crafted and put together. And you've got 10 really brilliant songs there. Did, it, did you yeah. feel that the stars had lined up for you and that, that this was a good period? Well, I mean, I, I'm so glad you say that because I, I agree. I mean, I, that's why I like it. There isn't, there isn't a track that you want to fast forward through, really. Um, and no, the, the answer, to be, to be honest, is that it's the result of quite a few years of writing. So, it's, you know, that thing of, you know, the second album syndrome. I mean, we didn't have the second album syndrome um, yes. because, um, you know, to put it bluntly, um, you know, there was quite a big gap between the two records. <laughs> <laughs> so, so there was plenty, you know, so, so the, the quality of the material, I, I, I think you're right. I hope you're right. Is, um, is, is very good because we didn't have to have any fillers, you know? Yes. So, yeah. And then, then my solo album, I, I was doing concurrently at the same time as that. Um, but, but this time, with Jeffrey Haslam, um, just me and him working on that. Yeah. And, uh, do you and he was brilliant at that. And do you feel that you're now sort of getting into your stride or has this kind of horrendous pandemic slightly sort of scuppered the creative kind of flow? Yes, I'm afraid it has rather. Um, yeah, yes, it, 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 I mean, I, I wonder what other writers have felt because, you know, when you, you, you can't see any, um, you, you just don't know at what stage in the future you're going to be able to play these songs with with other people and either live or in a studio. It, it does rather take take the, the shine, take the enthusiasm out of it, rather. Yeah. Well, I think from what I've gathered, there's two and there's two camps. There's the people who did the album and touring last year and thought, great, this year we'll have a year off. So they're thinking, oh, this is quite handy. And those people who were just releasing albums with the tour are completely winded they're just like i can't believe what's happened mm. they, you no, know, I, I, and I feel terrible for them i really yeah. do i feel awful about uh, I, you know i mean the younger people trying who are sort of just breaking into it all and and maybe yeah. had thought they'd had their big break and and now it's just sort of um up in the air isn't it um Very. so no i mean i you know I, I i feel sorry for for all of them i mean we've had a great run we managed to do a gig in january actually which was amazing we <laughs> uh we ha obviously had no one had any idea that that was the last month you, you know going to be playing um yes um but uh i don't know i i don't know what i'm seeing lloyd tomorrow actually he's he's um i haven't seen him for months but he's back he's been out of london he's back and i mean i'll have a chat with him about what what to do um i mean really what what 
the main thing to do is try and get some traction on the album we've actually recorded, you know. Um, yes. Give, give us a bit of momentum from that. Well, I guess seeing people, meeting people up live is, is kind of where being an artist is kind of at the most thrilling and most exciting. So it kind of, and most bands spend a few years kind of just playing live in small gigs before they get it, you know, and then, but it's like the Beatles, you know, obviously their manager, Brian Epstein, thought you're good, but you're not amazing. Let's send you to Hamburg, you know, sharpen yourself up, come back, and you're a bit more match fit. It's a bit like you went off and did some training, didn't you? So, you know, and a lot of, you know, Bowie in the 60s, I mean, I was obsessed with Bowie and my first single was Space Oddity from 1974 or 75 not the 69 period when but it was when it got reissued but then when I explored Bowie it's like he did all this work in the 60s what got completely forgotten and if he hadn't become David Bowie from the 70s onwards that work from the 60s because the thing what always amazes me who would have played and listened to that when you could have had the Doors, Jefferson Airplane, Jimi Hendrix, Dave, um, the Beatles, the Stones, the Kinks and Bowie with these quirky little folk songs it's very strange isn't it? Yes I, I quite agree well I mean they I, I guess the answer to your question is that first record, I mean, the, the, the first proper record he made, which is now called Dave, Songs of David Bowie, Bowie, I think, with, um, but, well, it has Space Oddity on it, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. But it is very fey, and that's, that's right. <laughs> um, of course, of course I, I adore it. Um, and um, yes, you're, you're, you're right. He could so easily have just not made, not, not made the bus, as it were. Yes, the 60s material was just very odd, you know, I just couldn't... Yeah, what... I tell you what I do recommend, um, which I read during lockdown, is the book that um, Woody Woodmansey um, wrote about it all. Yes. The drama, have, have you read that? Yeah, I did. It's quite emotional, isn't it, really? Well, yes, it is, but it's quite... A, I mean, it's, but it is interesting factually as well, isn't it? Um, yeah, it is. Well, I did a few interviews with Woody, and he told me an amazing story was that when it was Bowie's night, it, when Bowie's part, um, birthday in January of 2016, they were in New York, and there was this rumour that Bowie might be there, but he wasn't. So Tony Visconti phoned from the stage because they were in that band called Holy Holy doing the work yeah. with Bowie. So they phoned him and sort of wished him happy birthday, and Bowie was there saying, what do you think of the new album and the crowd? And the next day, you know, they did the gig. The next day, you know, Woody Woodman, you know, Woody's phone is just literally going berserk, and, and Bowie had died, and it's like, but we spoke to him on stage the night before, and it's like, yeah, the weird coincidence of that is just yeah. like that must that must have been very chilling. That actually, yeah. yeah, it's like, but we just wished him. We all sung happy birthday, and yeah, he, yeah. you know, I think it was, and his wife just died as well, didn't she? Woody's wife. Oh, died. I'm not. Yes, I'm not sure. Um, Julie about yeah. that. Yeah, I, uh, I mean, I saw Holy Holy in um, in London when when the few years ago it was great fun yes the great and Mark Armand did a couple of songs with them it was it was brilliant yes so look what would you say then to an 18 year old self that was start you know interested starting out or what we what do you wish someone had said to you when you were 18 on your journey you know in the world that was kind of creative arts and music um well one thing is definitely just you know just be true to yourself and 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 don't try and um, don't, don't try and please the powers that be, you know, because I think you just, you, you, you waste time and it's very demoralizing. The second thing is get in with the crowd, get in with the, the peop other people who are doing what you're doing, spend time with them, 
um, I, I, I missed that. I, you know, for instance, I'll give you an example. I mean, I should have been going down to Blitz every, every night and hanging out with all those people in Blitz and making friends there. And, you yeah. know, um, I wasn't, uh, um, you know, um, and I mean, you know, obviously that is, it's not, it's not easy, easy for everyone to do, but it, it wasn't that difficult then because there was a scene and I wasn't part of the scene. Yes. And I think that that's what you should do if you, if you possibly can is um, make yourself part of the scene. Yeah. And I think, um, yeah, I guess, oh gosh. Um, well, it was a different, it was, a, it was all very different then because it, the record companies held sway. They were so important, you know, and so it was, it was all about getting a deal, wasn't it? <laughs> um, and I don't really know, that it, it, I don't think it's quite the same now, is it? It's, it's completely- well, I think that the, the, the problem now, I mean, you can't ever have, everything perfect but then you had those gatekeepers so you had the music press who were hugely influential so if you were in with them obviously that's good but at the same time you know they'd have a circulation of like a hundred thousand a week didn't they the NME then there was the Sands Melody Maker record mirror then you had John Peel then you had like every city had little venues around the country so a lot of those bands I've interviewed you know, they just got in their transit and they went to, you know, Norwich, the Arts Centre, or they went up to Leeds or Glasgow or Bristol, you know, just in these random dates. Mm. And everything was quite folksy, I suppose. You know, it was all quite organic, you know. Well, John Peel played a sudden you get a phone call from, a, you know, a promoter who does an indie night in Norwich on a Wednesday. And you go, oh, yeah, God, of course, we'll come and go come there in two months time and do it. So you kind of had that that kind of network. But then you didn't, you know, but then you were slaves to the industry, whereas now you, you can be your own boss, but you don't have those gatekeepers. So you, it's like, how do you get your, you know, work out there? I think that's yes. a difficult one. It, it's a conundrum. It really is that. Um, and I, I, yes, and I haven't, I haven't figured it out. <laughs> I obviously haven't figured it out. Um, yeah, I think... Um, Yes, exactly. That that sort of word of mouth thing. I think, you know, you think you'd think the internet would have helped it enormously, but in fact, it's just created this blizzard, hasn't it? Really? Yeah. <clears throat> yes. No, um, okay. Yeah. I think it's um, like you said. Do you wish? I've lost my voice. Yeah. <clears throat> <clears throat> oh, got no cake. No, but do you wish you'd be more new romantic? Yes. Um, well, exactly. Um, I suppose, yes, really what goes on from what I was saying just now is um, <laughs> slightly contradicting myself here, actually, but, <laughs> but um, not, not so much musically pleasing the record companies, but in terms of fashion, yes, you see, um, that, that was all happening in, in, a, in a fashion sense. And I, I completely sort of ignored that chance to... to be one of those personalities. Yes. And, and um, that's what you have to do. You have to promote yourself as a personality. It's a, a, the, mu the music is one thing, but you also have to be, or you did anyway in those days, um, have to be an, 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 interesting, an interesting commodity for, for anyone who wants to promote you to promote you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, because obviously you had more of a punk idea, but you know, people like Martin Kemp really saw 
you know, they put that bit of punk, bit of Bowie, bit of glam and went, oh, we're the Spandau Valley and that's it. And I just wondered if you went, ah, oh, that was a clever, wish we'd done that. Yes, I, I mean, absolutely right. Um, that's, that's exactly right. We, we should have done something along those lines. Um, and dressing up, up all in red really wasn't, wasn't the answer. <laughs> <laughs> it, it took a bit more than that. So yes, you, you, I think basically, you know, I think holistic is the word, isn't it? You know, I don't, you have to take a holistic view of your whole thing. Mm. Uh, and, um, and also look at other people who are doing well and, and why they're doing well. Yes, exactly. Yeah, it's a very it's a very tricky one. But anyway, look, thank you ever so much for giving me the time for this. And um, like I said, it's just been brilliant. And and I also heard Lloyd the other day. There was a there's a podcast called The Rock's Back Pages with Bernie Hoskins, Hopkins, Hoskins, and he was oh, talking I, about. His... I, God, I, I used to know Barney. Barney yes. Hoskins. Yes, so yeah. He, so he does a podcast called Rock's Back Pages, and Lloyd was on it talking about his you know time in in sort of rock journalism. So it was quite funny. Oh, right. Yes. Interesting. Uh, yeah, Lloyd was also on, um, I mean, he's such a Renaissance man. I mean, it's really, <laughs> it's, it's very difficult to keep up with him. But he was also on Times Radio because he's just written a book about Bernini, the Renaissance sculptor. Oh, so, right. Yeah. So, and he gave, you know, gave us a plug on that, which was very nice. So, yes. I know it's been, a, it's been a great pleasure talking to you. Yeah, well, thank you so much. Well, look, good luck with it all. And, um, you know, I just love this. You know, I thought the album is just amazing, actually. Well, that's really kind. Um, I mean, if you've got <laughs> if you've got any ideas about what on earth we should do with it, I would be very <laughs> pleased to hear them. <laughs> I know, God. You'll have to get one of those. Did you ever see this film on Netflix, The Fire Festival, with um, those influencers? You know, you have to get some influencers to sort of try. <laughs> I, I certainly did. That was hysterical, that thing, wasn't it? <laughs> I love that. Um, influences as well. <laughs> influencers is what we need um you know and um yeah, I mean, what you re sort of what you pray for is someone picking it up picking one of the songs up and using it for an advert or something. Yeah. yeah and also i mean it's a shame but the you know you're, you're probably a very good festy band aren't you glastonbury you played glastonbury recently and mm. you know those kind of wilderness festivals and and you know there's a lot of there were a lot of festivals and i think you'd probably get on as an amazing festival band as a really good time you know. Yeah, I mean, no, I, I agree. That was definitely, definitely an avenue for us. Um, and um, yeah. yeah, something, something will come up. <laughs> anyway, look, thank you ever so much. It's been amazing. Lovely. Take care. Thank you very much, David. Stay Best in touch. The, yeah, I will. Take care. Bye. Thanks. Bye bye. And that is, um, or was me in conversation with Valentine Guinness. A big thank you for giving me the time for that interview. This has been the C86 Show. I'm David Easter. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. Also, I've done lots of interviews. Go and find them if you want to. It's Podbean, um, Spotify, iTunes, C86 Show. What not to like? Anyway, look, have a great week. Stay safe.